Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. You know, human beings were created for a high calling. Throughout history, people have wrestled with the question of what exactly separates humanity from the other creatures of the world. And through the ages, different answers have been given. Some have suggested the ability to reason at a high level. Others have suggested morality. And still others have argued that a, a clear sense of personhood is what separates humanity from all the other species. And in trying to argue against the uniqueness of humanity, many have argued that these features of humanity are not necessarily distinct, or at least not as distinct as we would like to believe from the other species. Perhaps the best way to think about these types of features, reasoning, morality, personhood, etc., is that they're more like points on a spectrum than yes or no or have and have not. And we can argue such things with great thinkers of the world all day long and not find a resolution to such questions. However, we can know that what distinguishes human beings from the rest of creation is that human beings were created for a high calling. Now, we don't know this from sheer observation. In fact, what we have observed has led to endless debates without resolution, like the examples I just gave. So how do we know? We know that human beings were created for a high calling because God has revealed as much in the scriptures. And I'm grateful that God did not leave us guessing here. So why are we here? What is our purpose? And thankfully, he's given us an answer. So what is our high calling? What is it, in fact, that separates us from the rest of creation? And we see it right at the beginning of the biblical narrative in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what's distinct about humanity from the rest of creation? We have been created in the image of God. Now theologians have long engaged in similar debate as the previous one mentioned. In what way were we created in the image of God? What about us is distinctly like God, they ask. Is it our ability to reason? Is it our moral base? Is it our personhood? Or is it our distinct ability to engage in relationship with God? Is it our ability to create, perhaps? Is it our capacity for interpersonal relationships? These are all ways in which we, again, are distinct in some ways, if not many, from the other creatures of the world, so perhaps the image of God is found in things such as these. And yet I would suggest to you that the image of God is not a particular aspect of humanity. It's not a, a part of us. Rather, we have been created in such a way that we image God before the world. 
Maybe an easier way for us to grasp this concept is that we were created to mirror God or to put him on display before the rest of creation. This is our high calling as human beings, to put God on display, to mirror him well. And before the fall in the garden, Adam and Eve did this, and they did this very well. But when humanity fell to sin, the image of God in us became tarnished. Here's what I mean by that. We largely do not mirror God well before the world. So let's think about this very practically for a moment. How many people in the world refuse to believe in God because of bad things that have happened to them at the hands of other human beings? How many of them blame God? Not because God did something to them, but because they endured injustice at the hands of a fellow human being. Human beings reflect God. They reflect God well or they reflect God poorly all the time, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. Someone we would consider particularly good or someone we would consider particularly bad. Every human person mirrors God. But the image, sadly, is often badly distorted since the fall. And then came Jesus. And what does the Bible say about him in relation to the image of God? We see this in Colossians 1.15. It says, the Son of God, I'm sorry, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so we see the same term employed. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. How about this one? John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, Jesus reflects the Father perfectly. The image of God in Jesus is not tarnished by sin. It's not tarnished by brokenness. It's not tarnished by the effects of the fall. And when someone looks at Jesus, they see the Father. And while we're not God the Son, we're not divine, we have also been created to mirror God as Jesus mirrors the Father. And one of the blessings of Christ's work on the cross, one of the blessings of our salvation, is that the image of God in us is being restored. We see this in passages such as 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into his image. We are being transformed into the image of Christ, who is the image of the Father. We are being made again to perform our high calling of putting God on display well before all of creation. But here's the rub. God is working this process, which we call sanctification. He's the power behind our transformation. He will do the work in us. However, we must be willing. 
We must surrender to him in this process. And many Christians don't grow in this process, or they grow very slowly. Because they're not intentional about desiring and seeking the transformation that God offers. And even as Christian, as Christians, this choice affects how well or how poorly we image God today in whatever context we find ourselves in. In fact, the hardest lesson I've ever learned on this issue came when I was a very new Christian. I was truly grateful for my salvation. I had an organic and authentic zeal for the Lord, which led me to share the gospel often on my high school campus. I was involved in every ministry, every service, every small group, every program I could get involved with. I loved the Lord. Even so, when a new friendship opportunity presented itself, I tucked my faith in my back pocket and spoke and acted in the same way that my new non-Christian friend did. She never heard the name of Jesus come out of my mouth. She never knew of my commitment to him. So when my friend was physically abused by her father, and she was contemplating ending her own life, and I took that opportunity to share the hope of Jesus with her, she told me this, Kevin, you're a good friend, but there is nothing about your life that makes me believe that God is real. Wow. I imaged God poorly in my friendship. And in her moment of desperation, I was of no help to her because of it. Friends, God is transforming us moment by moment, decision by decision, crossroads by crossroads, to the extent that we allow him to. We don't have to try to image God. We don't have to try to mirror him. We do it all the time. We do it either well or we do it poorly, whether by action or inaction. So what does a life look like that mirrors God well? I'd suggest one that looks like Jesus. One that did or does what Jesus did. And we have just such an example in our Acts passage for today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Again, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And here's what it says. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. 
The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So we left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set a foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no no child. God spoke to him in this way, For four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, seventy-five in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt." 
This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was said to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings, forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed him and murdered him. You have received the law and w- that was given you through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. Well, I know that that was a rather large passage, and I want to just spend a few moments recapping what was going on. And so we first heard about Stephen last week, if you remember. He was one of the Hellenistic Jews who was selected by the church to oversee the daily distribution to the widows. In fact, Acts 6-5 refers to him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is certainly what we see in our passage today. In fact, when we think about imaging God and doing the things that Jesus had done, certainly Stephen is a great example. As our passage begins, he's performing signs and wonders, most likely in conjunction with the proclamation of the gospel, which has led to now a dispute between himself and Hellenistic Jews who were not Christ's followers. And these antagonists twisted his words, they brought in false witnesses, and they persuaded the religious leaders that Stephen was a threat, and so they arrested him. And as he stood before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council that determined his fate, he was called on to answer to these charges. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, by which they were referring to the temple, and against the law. And then Stephen engages in his rather long uh, monologue, uh, and the parts of Israel's history that he mentions are chosen with care. In fact, his speech demonstrated that the religious leaders had their priorities very, very wrong. And I just want to recap some of them finer points here. The Sanhedrin is concerned about Stephen's attitude toward the temple. And yet, how much of Israel's history was spent apart from the land and apart from the temple? This is drawn out in Stephen's speech. The Sanhedrin is concerned about Stephen's attitude toward Moses and the law. And yet, how much of Israel uh, dismissed both Moses and the law throughout its history? And the biggest oversight is that Moses himself predicted the coming of the prophet like him, Jesus. And the religious leaders not only rejected him, but condemned him to death. And so here they are judging Stephen, but Stephen's speech makes it clear that they are the ones who've done wrong. And of course, they were enraged at what he said, and even more so when he spoke out loud what he saw, the risen Lord standing at the right hand of God. He looked up and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I have to point this out because this, this blows me away every time I look at this passage. Consider these following passages. Here's Ephesians 1.20. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Mark 14, 61 to 62. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Hebrews 10, 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what do these passages have in common? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. So why is this important to note? Because consider what we see after Stephen's testimony before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 7, verses 54 through 55, it says this, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so in this moment, after Stephen's testimony and waiting to welcome him into his presence, Jesus is not sitting. Jesus is, in fact, standing and in fact, this is the only place we see this in the New Testament. So let's understand some things here. Stephen wasn't perfect. 
even though it kind of looks like that as we read the text. But we know that he's not, right? Stephen's not perfect. He's still on his journey of sanctification, like all people are this side of heaven. In fact, if we want to immediately feel small about this situation, let's consider that Stephen is a brand new Christian. All of this, all these events we read about happen within months of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Stephen hadn't even been a Christian for a whole year. But certainly this man was intentional about surrendering to the transformation of Christ in his life. Certainly he was intentional about mirroring God well. Certainly he gave himself fully to the very things that Jesus had done and that Jesus had called his followers to do. And God requires no less from us. So in what ways did Stephen do what Jesus did? I'll call out just a few of them here from our text. First, he proclaimed the gospel and demonstrated the truth of the gospel by the abilities that God had given him. We see this in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So while the text may not explicitly mention the proclamation of the gospel, this would have been the context in which he was performing signs and wonders as a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. Further, we see that he was making claims about Jesus. This must be true because these are the claims that are being twisted by his accusers to get him in trouble with the religious leaders. So clearly he was proclaiming the gospel. And guess what? We're called to proclaim the gospel as well. We're called to proclaim the gospel and to demonstrate the truth of the gospel according to the abilities that God has given us. This is what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. This is what he calls his followers to do. This is what Stephen did. And this is one of the significant ways in which we mirror God. Here's something else about Stephen. He used divine wisdom. He knew what to say and how to say it in the situation he found himself in. We see this in verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And we might think, well, I, don't, I just don't have that kind of wisdom. And we might think that that's a valid excuse, perhaps, to not engage in the proclamation of the gospel to others. But God doesn't excuse those without wisdom from doing the things that he's commanded. Instead, in his mercy, he promises to provide wisdom if only we would seek him for it. We see this in James chapter 1, verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Jesus used divine wisdom throughout his ministry. Stephen did the same, and we are called to do the same. This is another way in which we mirror God before the world. Here's another one, and perhaps a hard one, or a harder one for us. Stephen forgave those who did him harm. Stephen forgave those who did him harm. We see this in verses 59 through 60 of chapter 7. It says, while they were stoning him, Another, literally, while they were in the process of killing him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, in our country, we don't forgive well at all. If someone does us wrong, we attack back. 
If someone threatens to do wrong, we plan on how to defend and to avenge. We hold wrong over people's heads seemingly forever. What did Jesus do as he was being nailed to the cross? He asked the Father to forgive those who were committing this atrocity, this injustice against him. What did Stephen do as the religious leaders were literally stoning him to death? He asked God to forgive them. Friends, if these things seem against the grain, don't worry, they are. If they seem impossible, I assure you, they are not. As long as we're willing to allow the Lord to work in us, to transform us, to give us the capacity to do this, so that we might image him well, mirror him well, put him on display. Yes, apart from him, it is impossible. But with him, it is absolutely not impossible. If Christians were intentional about living for Christ, inviting him to transform them, putting God on display, doing what he's commanded, friends, there would be such a light shining in the darkness of this world that so many would come to faith in Jesus, it would be, it would be so inspiring. Sadly, the church in many parts of the world, the U.S. included, has become largely impotent. And I think the number one reason is that we have lost the importance of mirroring God well. This is what we were created to do. This is our high calling. We were created in God's image to put him on display, and we do it, either well or poorly. And the moment we take our eyes off of Jesus and put them back on ourselves or the world around us, we represent God poorly to the world. We cause people to hear what we have to say and to respond with, there's nothing in your life that makes me believe that this is true. Friends, the cost is too high. We have to take this seriously. 